the workplace is one of the few places standing where we actually are still functioning in relationship with a group of people. And I'm saying that super specifically because most of us are not operating in community in our workplaces. We are just showing up with a group of people that are working parallel with us. But as human beings, we have a deep, deep desire to be in good community with one another. And when organizations infuse into leadership the skills to build community, to be really good humans with one another, then we stay in the workplace and we contribute. And it's not because of the job or the task, but the people that we're doing this task with. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Robin Short. Robin is the founder of the Workplace Peace Institute, an organization she created to help organizations create highly engaged workplaces where dignity is consistently honored and experienced. She's also founder and publisher of Good Media Press, an independent book publisher with a mission to promote peace and social justice through books and other media. And she's also the founder and board chair of the Peace and Conciliation Project, a 501c3 anti-racism organization that brings communities together to address and repair the harm of racial injustice. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Robin. Mike, thank you so much for having me here. So let's start with the Workplace Peace Institute. What do y'all do over there? So at Workplace Peace Institute, we support organizations in building a workplace culture where all people can thrive. We know that when people thrive, organizations thrive. So we do that really specifically through systems change work. And I came to this work originally through conflict management, dispute resolution, um, and mediation. And when you call in a workplace mediator to support an organization who's having conflict, things have gone really off the rails. (laughs) And what I found over and over each time I would come into an organization to support them through some form of intervention is that the conflict that was showing up at the human level was a manifestation of something not working in the system itself. So I stepped back, went back and got my PhD in organization development and re-entered this work through the systems perspective. So what we do is we help organizations, really specifically uh, senior leadership and C-suite, build organizational systems that have mechanisms built into them that bring out the best in people. So that when... um, so that and really specifically centered around peace, human security, and dignity, because we know those are the foundations what for what's necessary for people to really contribute at their highest level. So let's talk about that. So you would be brought in to mediate some sort of conflict in the organization, and I'm I'm guessing that was often uh, in a way that the organization was trying to avoid ending up in some sort of litigation or have some sort of real lose, lose significant talent or something like that. But then you, you were seeing 
okay, the, I'm seeing these issues consistently and they're not just this personality and this personality don't work together. There's something else here. Is that, is that how you got to that idea that there's, we've got yeah. a structural problem in, in how the organizations are, are, are working? Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So two individuals or more are in conflict. And as I would really dig into the conflict through mediation, what was surfacing over and over is that the conditions inside the organization were causing suffering. And for a whole myriad of reasons, we all manage and engage and process those difficulties differently because we have different um, contributing factors that are affecting us as individuals. Uh, but consistently, the problem wasn't the people. It was the people and their ability to engage in a, engage productively in a system that wasn't functioning healthy. So if the organization is contributing to conflict, what is that? What? How does the organizational structure, conf- I mean, like I can, I think about place, you know, clients I've worked with, let's say it's a sales organization, highly competitive and uh, sometimes cutthroat uh, and, you know, ends justify the means sometimes, those kind of things. But you put the people who are going to be successful in that environment, you put a lot of those folks in the same room and you're going to have conflict. I mean, but, but when you're talking on a broader structural scale, what does that look like and, and or what kind of things contribute to that, you know, structurally contribute to that kind of conflict? Great question. Thank you. So I follow the work of um, organization, the de- organization development consultant, Frederick Lulu. And when I encountered his work first through a book called Reinventing Organizations, in that book, he presents this idea of organizational paradigms. Paradigms are sim- essentially the methodologies, the belief systems, the ideas, the behaviors that shape the way we show up in any particular space or environment. So he has, um, in his book, he has six paradigms that he's color-coded just for simplicity's sake. The colors don't really mean a whole lot. Um, And they begin with a red paradigm and go to a amber paradigm and an orange paradigm and then green and teal. And inside of these paradigms, you start with red being a hyper hierarchical organization that all power is held at the very top, but there's not a lot of actual like bureaucratic processes in place. So the organization thrives from chaos and kind of bullying behavior. So Many of us have have worked inside of a red organization. I worked in an organization one time that would definitely qualify as a red organization. And in the first week of working there, I was told by several people, there were two managing uh, partners, pick one because you got to pick one and then you're on that team and you and you're now in this combat with the other team for the rest of your duration in the organization. Super toxic. Uh, caused a lot of suffering. And then you have amber or organizations. Amber organizations are also very hierarchical, um, but they are steeped in bureaucracy. So think about government institutions, school districts, um, maybe the Catholic Church, these old organizations that have been around for many years, and um, they operate from looking back to the past will inform the future. 
Then you have orange organizations, and orange organizations are what most of us are accustomed to. These are hierarchical organizations where power sits at the top, but the C-suite is really delegating the what, and uh, the director and middle management is delegating the how. So there's a little bit of freedom that's operating inside of this structure. The challenge with that structure is that uh, there's a lot of freedom on the how. So the leadership in terms of how leaders are showing up and motivating the workforce to the execution of the mission and the purpose of the organization is really different team by team. So you might have one team that's thriving because they have a leadership um, approach that is very human centric and, um, and is able to like inspire and tap into like human purpose. And then you have another leader in the organization who's hyper competitive and punitive. And so the overarching system struggles because you don't have consistency in the leadership approach. And it's still operating inside of a structure where um, the individual contributor doesn't have a lot of access to power, which means they don't have a lot of access to how they show up and contribute. And in those organizations, what often happens is the expertise that sits inside your job description is the only expertise you're able to bring into the organization. But you may have a whole vast range of ways that you can contribute, but you have to stay in your lane. And we humans, we humans really want to be able to give all that we have to give. It's just part of our part of who we are as people. We want to be able to contribute in all the ways we can contribute. And inside these orange uh, paradigms, we're struggling with um, inconsistent leadership approaches and inability to really give all that we have to give. So, I'm you know a career HR, and we've got job descriptions, and we're hiring people to do specific tasks, and uh, you know manage certain kinds of projects and do certain kinds of work. Help me understand what you mean. How does somebody in that environment, I mean, you know, if I've got a an accounting, uh, let's say it's a, you know, an accountant and they also happen to be a great artist and want to try to figure out how to, uh, you know, I may not, I don't need an artist, what I need is an accountant. And that's why I'm, I'm that's why I'm paying you the salary you're paying. So help me understand uh, as a, Almost boomer generation Gen Xer. What uh, what you're talking about about this human centric approach and this this idea around contributing more outside of their job description? Mm -hmm. That's such a great question, and I am not anti job description. People need to understand that people need role clarity for sure uh, for their for themselves, but also in order to be in healthy relationship with one another. However, when we see a problem and we have the expertise to contribute, but our expertise isn't invited into the problem solving, it, it is perceived, we experience it as an assault on our dignity. Um, so what I think is really healthy in organizations is that we have role clarity. I know what my primary function is, but there are opportunities for contribution outside of your your role description. So um, that might look like, and I'm not prescribing, I'm brainstorming, that might look like we have a particular challenge that we're facing and we're going to open up a 
a, you know, a committee or a town hall meeting for people to bring to bring solutions forward. It doesn't mean we're going to act on them, but we're going to be able to hear the wisdom that lives inside the organization. And you're going to be able to have the opportunity to contribute in areas that you feel passionate about and that you where where you have some um, heart you know, you have some heart inside this inside this issue, and you have personal interest. Um, a, a, you know, a kind of funny example of this is I was working with an organization who was about we were small, we were about a thirty person organization, and uh, we were relocating, and um, nobody had gone through this process before. They were in the building they had been in for years and years, so we were going to relocate. So the human resource person brought in the people who in her mind would have expertise. And that was the graphic designer because they would have like some design thinking. Um, uh, I, I can't remember all the people that she brought, maybe some some uh, managing directors whose teams would be influenced. Well, what she didn't know is that I had actually gone through a whole relo with another organization. I had designed the entire space. I had navigated all the contracts and I am really, really good at it. And it is 100% not inside the job description that I had. Um, I would have voluntarily given hours and hours and hours to this work because it's super fun to me and it's exciting. And um, and it's just something that I'm good at. But I wasn't invited into that meeting. And so I sat on the sidelines feeling um, wounded, <laughs> not feeling heard, and not being an active promoter of this really necessary work because I hadn't been invited into it. So a way to solve for that is there, here's this problem that's different from the problems we're usually facing. Who's interested in bringing some ideas forward and open up a process where people can contribute? Another, another way that we can do this is oftentimes you have teams that are really uh, centered to one another, right? They, they, they do different work, maybe a graphic design team and a content development team. They do different work, but both their work is contributing to the same problem or to the same product development. And uh, too often I have observed those work streams happening in a silo instead of some sort of cross-functional team that's led by um, uh, someone, someone who has expertise or facilitation skills around collaboration bringing these groups together so that they can 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 bring all their wisdom and creativity and expertise toward the problem solving. Okay. Uh, okay, that helps. That helps. And you were and what's the next level after the So orange? the next level is a green organization and the green organization is still operating inside of a hierarchical pyramid but it's very culture driven. So um, these these organizations often operate like a family system. And they are uh, very often you see people who you, you're, you either stay for 90 days and leave or you're there for the rest of your life. You either are a total culture fit or you're not at all. And these are the organizations that you hear people say, man, she's really drinking the Kool-Aid over there. Um, they are often on the list of best places to work, but you're you are drawing that opinion from the people who fit, not sure. the people who weren't a good fit. And what's problematic around that is the lack of diversity um, in thought, lack of diversity in values, lack of uh, diversity in um, discipline. And these organizations become very 
um, siloed in the way that they think. And so they're losing out on contribution because of this culture fit um, situation. So, and also I don't think we should be modeling our corporations after family systems. I just, I'm, that's a whole nother podcast, but I could talk about that for 30 minutes for sure. Um, and then what Lulu does, this organization development consultant, he jumps from green to teal. And I see teal as being extraordinarily aspirational. The teal organization is totally flattened. There's no institutional leadership, anyone who's sitting in a hierarchy that holds the power to make executive decisions. And in a teal organization, everyone is invited to bring forward all that they have to contribute and be stewards of, to be just really passionate stewards of the organization's mission. The challenge with this, so when I first when I first engaged with Lulu's work, I just got totally lit up around this teal paradigm um, because in many ways, my childhood uh, and my family system, we were very, very teal. So it resonated with me that I could engage in problems that I had had opportunities to bring solutions to, even if they weren't my exact job description. So I began as a consultant really actively looking for organizations that were doing this. And what I came to realize very quickly is we human beings do not have the conflict resolution skills <laughs> to operate outside of some paradigm that offers some form of leadership, which led me to developing what I call the turquoise. It sits between green and teal. And the turquoise is um, a paradigm where, and this is where all my work really resides, is a paradigm where there is institutional formal leadership, but the role of that leadership isn't to determine the how and the what, it's to mobilize the wisdom and the expertise that lives inside the organization. And so from a turquoise paradigm leadership perspective, we need different skill sets. We need to be highly um, proficient in human behavior. We need to know how to mobilize the best in people. We need to support people in collaboration. We need to be good facilitators. We need to be uh, inspirational because our number one goal is to ensure that everyone's mobilizing behind the mission, the vision. And this is a completely different skill set than a delegation, uh, the role of delegation or subject matter expert or executive decision maker. It's, it's really centered around supporting the team in collaboration and being able to develop and grow people so that they're able to contribute to the organization at their highest level. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 52 and enter the keyword dignity. That's D-I-G-N-I-T-Y. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 10 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. 
Three are even approved for HRCI business credit and one qualifies for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Dr. Robin Short. But at the, the, but the bottom line of the organization, let's say, it's, especially if it's a for-profit organization, we have a certain customer that we serve a, cer- you know, a certain product to, you know, we meet a certain need for, and that's why we're here. And so, I mean, I think Lelou's farthest thing, the, the teal, I, I don't understand how that would work in an organization, maybe in a nonprofit. Uh, but when the bottom line is we're bringing people together to create value and to execute on a specific mission um, and, and, you know, with certain, you know, differentiators in the marketplace, I, I, I can have a real, I think maybe the same challenge you had, but with, with that teal idea that, that we're going to, you know, there's going to be a lot of kumbaya and we're going to sit around and, uh, you know, take a vote on, on business decisions about what I, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen an organization where that would work. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that it works, the Patagonia is actually a teal organization, okay. the way that it works. So it can work and it can be very profitable. Um, the way that it functions is we have to totally dismantle our understanding of what we are used to seeing in an organization, right? We are really accustomed to a pyramid structure and this pyramid structure lives everywhere. It's in most of our family systems. It's in our schools. It's in our jobs. It's, it has been the structure we've engaged with at every stage of our development as human beings. So in order to be in teal, we have to like radically dismantle that whole paradigm and enter into a new paradigm. And what that tends to look like from, a practice perspective is there is some governing constitution that is the sacred sort of social agreement that we have around how we're going to be in relationship with one another and what we're here to accomplish. You have a mission that people can seriously get behind. You cannot have a turquoise or teal organization without a mission that people are really, really passionate about. Um, That doesn't matter. It does. That doesn't mean it has to be you know, solving huge world problems. I'm thinking really specifically about an organization I was working with, and they were uh, um, an agriculture, an uh, agriculture biotech company. Um, so what they did was they created products that um, help plants grow. But the scientist that they, you know, that that did this work, that they were super, super, super passionate about this. So um, you've got this governing um, social contract that governs the organization, something no other organization really has. This goes way beyond bylaws. It tells us how we're going to be in relationship with one another. And then what happens is you have committees that surface to problem solve. So it's not a democracy from the perspective of we have a decision to make everybody come and put in a vote, but rather you have a committee of people who are going to be the people most affected by the problem. This idea of putting those closest to the problem, closest to the solution. So you have this committee of people who are the, who are the most critical to the problem, who come together to problem solve, they then have a responsibility to seek advice and guidance from others who are going to be impacted or others whose expertise should be weighing in on it. But those folks that they're seeking guidance from aren't the decision maker. They're just supporting you in informing the way you're going to make your decision. And then that committee solves the problem. When that problem is solved, the committee itself dissolves and it's no longer necessary. So 
what that does is um, a couple of things. One, I'm an expert in what I do, so I've got that primary job function. But then I also have areas of expertise that live outside that primary job. And um, and so I join these committees as they're necessary. And what that does is it gives me a skin in the game to the success of the whole organization. I get outside of my silo and I get outside of my individual interest and I become a steward of the community itself. So I'm, so I'm deeply invested in how the whole organization itself operates. But what I definitely have observed is it does require sophisticated conflict resolution skills. And unless you have gone through a conflict management dispute resolution graduate program, most of us aren't entering the workforce with um, anything more than what we learned, you know, in the seventh grade, which most of us weren't doing a very good job (laughs) in the seventh grade. Well, and, and, and I would think it would take, uh, attracting a certain kind of employee. I mean, I, th- I would bet that you've got a lot of people out there who just want to come and do bookkeeping all day or just want to put tab A and slot A all day and aren't interested in getting involved or even that passionate. I mean, you know, Patagonia has got that that whole, you know, sustainability and, you know, they've got a whole brand around it and maybe they can attract people. But, um, you know, and I think we've done a great job of attracting people who really care about what we do and care about our clients. But I don't think there are people out there, even the, the people I'm recruiting, when I, you know, my best team members before they came on board weren't thinking, oh, we want to make, you know, help employers make well-informed decisions about the people they involve in their business. I mean, that's just, you know, that's that's not their passion. Their passion is often coming in, doing a great job, being rewarded for it, and then returning to their families and doing their other things. And, and you know, um, and I'm kind of skeptical sometimes that we focus so much on wanting people to be bought into our mission uh, rather than just understanding it and understanding that their job isn't, shouldn't be the most rewarding thing in their life. And, and you know, I don't want that for any of my employees. Uh, you know, I want them to, you know, I want to, and so, so talk to me about that because I've, I'm just having a hard, and I think a lot of our listeners, especially those who are small business owners, are going to be kind of skeptical of, mm-hmm. uh, of some of that. Sure. So um, I'm going to back away a little bit from the teal organization sure. and, and, and kind of position our conversation in the turquoise, because I do think that while I personally, as a human being, um, get all lit up around the idea of teal. I don't think the vast majority of people do. And I don't think we as humans, I mean, you can just look at the way we're engaging in politics. We aren't ready <laughs> to function in that kind of community. But I do believe that the vast majority of humans, um, to go back to what you said, it's not our job that is the most important thing to us, but rather the community that we spend so much time with. And I think that is where in the turquoise paradigm, the leadership is so critical or should be so critical to the development of a community that deeply cares for one another. That community of people who will, um, who will, who will, let me just pause right there. In this organization that I used to work in that was deeply red. I built a very turquoise team. And that team, that community 
would do anything for one another. So a problem would show up, a deadline that was um, just right around the corner that someone didn't have time to execute on really well. And the whole team would come up and say, how can I support you? What can I do? I can set some of this aside and support you in this work. It's that level of community that we do desperately want as humans. And that has actually begun to really dissolve in society as a whole. Um, People are moving away, you know, statistically, we can see that people are moving away from faith-based communities. And the church was one of the last places where people built that level of accountability to one another. When, you know, something happened in the family, the casserole crew showed up. Like there was always this sort of community of people that said, what happens in your life happens in my life, and I'll be there in relationship with you. And the workplace is one of the few places is standing where we actually are still functioning in relationship with a group of people. And I'm saying that super specifically because most of us are not operating in community in our workplaces. We are just showing up with a group of people that are working parallel with us. But as human beings, we have a deep, deep desire to be in good community with one another. And when organizations infuse into leadership the skills to build community, to be really good humans with one another, then we stay in the workplace and we contribute. And it's not because of the job or the task, but the people that we're doing this task with. And yeah, and that definitely resonates with me. One of our core values is always work as one with respect and compassion. And quite honestly, in the 23 years I've had the company, um, if I've had to terminate someone involuntarily, uh, you know, for, for, you know, not being able, uh, other than just not being able to get the job or do the job effectively, it's always been for that. And often we, we you know, we start the conversations with the respect side, uh, and, or, you know, and, and, the, you know, and go, or actually we start the, you know, the conversations with the compassion side, Hey, this isn't how we want to do things here. This is not, you know, what, this isn't behavior we value. I mean, and, and then the, but then it crosses over to, okay, you can't respect that off, you know, and, and that's why you need to, you know, you've got to leave the organization. So I can really, and, and I know I've seen my team, we went, we went remote March of 2020 and I've talked to so many HR professionals and business owners and, and other leaders who said, oh, we could never go remote. It would kill our culture. It would break up things. And we all had to, you know, for a, some point, you know, a lot of us, you know, almost everybody had to do it at, at some level or just shut operations down. But and I was I had concerns about it because, you know, I have a really great team, but I can see in our Zoom chat uh, we've got different channels for different departments, and I can drop in there and see what they're talking. How you know, and somebody will ask a question, and three people will jump in and answer that question and support them. And or hey, can somebody look at this? Oh yeah, that's great. I can see that, and I have a pattern, and I hire for you know our analyst roles are mostly pretty introverted people who don't want to look somebody in the eye and have a convers a very long conversation a lot of the time. You know, people take more energy out of them then, but they jump in on the, on the chat. And we've, we've been remote to well over two years now and we're staying that way. Uh, I think they would revolt if I tried to drag them back to an office. Um, and so I can, I can really see how, what you're talking about there and the value to an organization of having, you know, and you know, that's the other thing I tell 
all my new employees on day one, I we, we go to lunch, I have a conversation with them around, someday you may wake up and say, oh crap, I don't want to go in there today. The day that happens, call me and let's talk. And I can either, if there's a problem, we can solve that, but I may need to help you find your next thing. And it's, you know, we're a small organization. It may well be outside of our organization. And, you know, if you find something that's the right place for you, God bless you, we'll, we'll support you there. And nobody ever has to worry about you saying, okay, I'm thinking about changing jobs, looking for a different employer and me saying, okay, you're gone tomorrow. Uh, that's just, you know, we're not, and so anyway, so that goes, that helps. That, that I think that, that your, your turquoise approach, we can see that. And I think we'd all like that for our, our teams inside the organization, regardless of, and I've seen HR departments where that happened and while the rest of the organization was on fire because their leadership, the rest of the organization's leadership uh, wasn't what it ought to, you know, probably should have been uh, or could have been. But that HR leader said, I'm going to protect my people. We're going to build this and try to change the organization by modeling this kind of behavior. Uh, how do you see that that actually works? An organ, you know, from you know that you know somebody modeling that kind of behavior from inside the organization. It does work. I do see it working. It takes time for people to unlearn what they have been told their whole lives was the right behavior. This is how good businesses operate. This is what leadership looks like and to begin to learn new skills. Um, but it does, it is effective. Um, but it requires, I mean, to me, the really key function is that we begin to see our role as leaders, exactly what you just described, Mike, which is really genuine human beings that really genuinely care about the human beings that we're in relationship with, which means if you've given what you have to give to this organization, we celebrate your ability to go right. somewhere else. Um, but very few organizations and very few people have had that modeled well for them. We've, we're running out of time, but we've used the term over and over throughout this conversation, dignity. Define dignity so that we're we know we're on the same we're on the same page there. So the definition of dignity that informs my work is dignity is our inherent worth and value as human beings. That means it's a birthright. We all of us have dignity, and our dignity cannot be taken from us, but our dignity can be violated. And dignity differs from respect in that I have inherent worth and value as a human being. But the way that you are honoring that inherent worth and value will either earn my respect from you or it will earn me not respecting you. Um, so the dignity is inherent to who we are. And when we experience violations of dignity in the workplace, which is a violating my um, my sense of who I am in terms of um, um, identity, um, violations of, of recognition and acknowledgement, fairness, um, autonomy. There's, um, I follow the work of um, Donna Hicks, who is, who is really the primary researcher and leader in the space of dignity. When our dignity is violated, our body registers that like an actual physical threat, and we go into fight, flight, uh, freeze mode. And so what's so critical to me about the ability for dignity to be honored and experienced in the workplace is that when people are experiencing an identity, um, a dignity violation, 
they move into an area of the brain that is around defense mode. That area of the brain is an area that shuts off critical thinking, problem solving, collaboration, connection. So there's a direct correlation to honoring dignity and having a person be operating from brain circuitry that the organization critically needs. Um, All of the numbers we see around disengaged employees, those are employees that are are literally from a brain circuitry uh, perspective. They're not operating in the, the areas of their brain that's necessary for them to contribute effectively to the organization because they're in defense mode. So to clarify, there's a difference between giving someone dignity and giving somebody respect or right. Is it, or is it, it's not giving because you're saying that dignity is, is inherent in who we are. So it's just dignity means I'm struggling with this. There's a correlation. So there's a correlation when my dignity is honored, I experience being in a respectful relationship. Okay. So my dignity though, what is that? Um, It's just who I at my core, the ability to express who I am without, uh, you know, without fear of reprisal. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to understand exactly if I'm going to, res- if I'm going to respect somebody's dignity, what is, like, like if somebody is just an obnoxious bore and, you know, I don't want to, don't want to work alongside this person. I don't want to, uh, does that mean that I'm disrespecting that person's dignity? So we have probably all had, so I'm thinking about two types of people that impact me. Uh, One is someone like my dad who puts an enormous amount of space in between every word. (laughs) So like slow processing, slow thinking, and I am just, my brain is just running a hundred miles an hour. I can easily violate the dignity of a person like that by cutting them off, by interrupting them, by finishing their sentence when in reality, this is simply core to who they are. It's how their brain processes. So for me to honor their inherent worth and value, I've got some self-regulation I need to do. I have some emotional intelligence I need to activate to be in good relationship with that person. Now, there's reciprocity there. For this other person to be in good relationship with my dignity, they also need to recognize I need things to move a little quicker. So there's this ongoing relationship that's necessary for us to honor the inherent worth and value of of another another person we're also encountering these like I, I because of the work that they do I do I have a lot more emotional intelligence than than maybe the average person I need to know that I'm going to need to do more work because I have more skills in this relationship so um so there's that piece then you have the exact opposite which is the person who just never stops talking right they pop into your office and now you've lost two and a half hours over a story about someone's wedding so there's this need to recognize there's a there is a certain level of connection that's going to be really important to this person that i do not need um, but in order for me to be in good relationship with them and honor their dignity i'm going to need to make time for that that's good. Okay. Well, that's, that helps. Um, if, if we're going to measure how much respect our organization has for individual dignity, I'm gonna, I promise this is the last question, but I want to get this in here. How do we, 
what, how do we measure that? What is, uh, you know, how do you know where your organization's at uh, so that you have a baseline to begin working on it? Nobody has ever asked me that question, and I'm so excited about it. <laughs> so I have a uh, audit that I conduct, and um, and what I do is um, it's there's two pieces to it. One, I ha- I have them take a conflict uh, styles inventory, and that inventory puts you into a particular category of conflict style. And then um, I ask them of these ten essential elements of dignity, which is the the dignity model of Den- Donna Hicks, which of these elements of dignity most resonate for you. Now talk to me about when this was honored now and when this was honored, what did that look like in terms of your ability to contribute to the organization in order for you to think critically, in order for you to experience creativity? And then we do the exact opposite. When this is violated, how does it impact your ability to, um, to experience creativity, critical thinking, et cetera. And um, by marrying this conflict style with the dignity piece, I'm able to actually go as we as the whole organization goes through the audit, I can see what paradigm the organization is operating in, and I can see how that's affecting the individuals inside the organization and what changes are going to need to happen in order for the organization to honor the dignity needs of the employees inside that inside that space. Um, so it doesn't measure it from the perspective of um, 62% of, uh, uh, it's, it's a qualitative uh, analysis, uh, but what it does produce is the behaviors that are affecting people and how those, and how those behaviors are harming or helping the organization and in the organization's ability to actually execute on what they're there to do. So much we could talk about there, and uh, and and Donna Hicks is it Donna Hicks? Is that that's it's the Donna Hicks? Yes. So yeah, she and, has and a book called Leading with Dignity. Leading with Dignity, and she's got ten items that contribute. To, uh-huh. ten, ten essential or? elements of dignity. Yeah, ten things that are necessary to honor dignity, and then I love this too: the ten temptations to violate your own dignity. When someone does something, the temptation to engage in such a way where you violate your own dignity. Wow. Okay, we could talk for hours and I'm (laughs) gonna go look up some of that, her research. But that is all the time we have today. So thank you, Robin, for joining me on Good Morning HR. Thank you so much for having me here. It was delightful. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, keep your chin up.